G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. We are the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. You probably know that by now. Well, Tim, we're just about there at the end of this season, and this is the last Bible reading from all the goodness of Genesis 3 before we wrap it all up next week. Yeah, that's right, Chris. We've got one more episode to come in this season, which will just help us see the big picture of the story we've been reading for the last two seasons, and which, of course, is connected back not only to Genesis 2, but to the creation story that came before it as well in Genesis 1. And after that, we're going to take a bit of a break for a month, as is our want. As is uh, want indeed holidays for me and I guess a study break for you, Tim. Yeah, that's right. I've got a lot of work to do to prepare season four of the podcast and the enigmatic Genesis 4. And I'll be doing that over the next month while the show is in recess. But as we said, there's still one more episode to go after this one before we take our break. So stick around and don't forget that you can still send us your giant questions and we will indeed address them on the show. Absolutely. Uh, and you can do that by going to our website, giantanswers.com, where you can not only send us your questions, but check out all the other stuff on the page and connect to us on the socials and all that sort of stuff that cool, young and uh, not so young people do these days. It's hip, it's happening, and it's where it's at. And uh, with that in mind, don't forget to also check out our mates at Raven Creek Social Club, where you'll find not just our podcast, but a whole bunch of other great shows. Anyway, that's enough for shilling. It's time to get on with the show. Oh, did I mention I have a book? Answers to Giant Questions, available now on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. Very good uh, shilling there. Um, okay, so let's get on with that. What is our Bible reading for today? Genesis 3, verse 24. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Mm, sounds interesting. Oh, it is. It really is. I'm sort of excited about this verse because of all the nerdy goodness that I found while preparing this. You might think that the verse as we have it in English is interesting, but wait until you hear the reading that I put together by considering various ancient sources for this passage. Here it is. You ready for this? Um, how do I prepare myself? Do I need to sit down? Mm, maybe you should. Okay, then. All right, here goes. He, that is God, thrust the man out and dwelt beyond the Garden of Eden in the midst of the throne guardians and the flame who wields a destroying weapon to guard the way of the tree of life. Yeah, that's uh, quite an epic uh, reading and quite different, really. So is that a bit of a hot take from you or is there some precedent for this reading? Well, I guess you could say some of this is mine, but as I mentioned earlier, I've been combing through some ancient sources and also some comparative literature from the ancient Near East, which has been of some assistance in putting these things together. And of course, the way I generally come across these things is by reading academic literature where I can. So I have the work of various biblical scholars to credit for bringing these insights to light. So yeah, I'm not just shooting from the hip. These things have been through academic peer review and you'll find a lot of this stuff published in respected journals. I'm just throwing it together and trying to keep it in simple terms where I can. So I started with some Jewish Targums on this particular Bible verse. Okay, first question that pops to mind, what is a Targum? Hmm. I thought you might ask that, so I prepared this answer. The Targums are basically Jewish readings of the biblical story with frequent interjections in the text where they provide commentary or 
midrashim on what they think it means. We were looking at something similar in last week's episode where I read portions from one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was the Melchizedek Scroll. Ah, uh, yes, that, that was pretty cool. So you can get some pretty good stuff out of these. Yeah, you can. So I was a bit surprised to find that there are four separate Targums that we know of still in existence today that quote Genesis 3.24, but they have consistently got different wording to what is preserved in the Masoretic text, which is what most of our Bibles are based on. Some of these are well-known and respected writings, and some of them are lesser known probably because they're only fragmentary in nature. The dating of each manuscript varies, and they're all quite late as far as we can tell. By late, I mean after the biblical period, and possibly even post-medieval period in at least one case. So it's really interesting that they consistently differ from the Masoretic text, which is itself very late, situated in the early medieval period between the 6th and 10th centuries AD. And we're talking about really small differences, like just the way that words are vocalised so that the meanings changed. It's actually quite possible that these Targumim, plural, may preserve the original Hebrew reading from a time that predated the Masoretic text. And given that at least two of the Targumim actually do predate the Masoretic text, that's really not far-fetched at all. So let's have a look at these different traditions. And you're going to see what I was picking up on in my rendering of the verse. These will just give you the first half of verse 24. Our first one is from Targum Neophyti. And he drove the man out, and he caused the glory of his eminence to dwell of old to the east of the Garden of Eden, between the two cherubim. And we'll go now to a fragmentary Targum, which is just known as Targum V. And he drove man out. And he caused the glory of his eminence to dwell of old to the east of the Garden of Eden, above the two cherubim. So we had a little difference there, and now we have our fragmentary Targum P. And he drove man out, and he caused the glory of his eminence to dwell of old above the Garden of Eden, between the two cherubim. And our last one is Targum Pseudo Jonathan, probably the best known one. And he drove man out from the place where he caused the glory of his eminence to dwell of old between the two cherubim. The part where it says to the east of the Garden of Eden is not included in this text. Yeah, those are quite a bit different, really, aren't they? Yeah. Interestingly, in two of these targums, the interpretive choice to preserve both the geographical statement in the east and the chronological statement of old actually alters the text as we know it to preserve both meanings. We've talked before on the podcast about how the phrase in the East can refer to the time in the past, but unless the phrase is repeated, you can't really use both options. And grammatically speaking, the only correct choice according to the text we have in the form we have it is the geographical statement in the East. This occurrence doesn't feature the ambiguity that we find in the use of the phrase in Genesis 2 verse 8 that we were reading it before, where it could mean either. However, the Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate, translated by St. Jerome in the 4th century AD, manages to preserve both meanings by using the convenient Latin term anti, which can do one or the other. So we have to ask ourselves if there was perhaps a tradition that preserved both meanings, which is no longer in existence today. Because if we didn't have two independent sources, uh, three if we include the Vulgate translation, that suggests that reading, we would never have known about it today. 
and all three of them insist on the two meanings made possible by the phrase in the East, despite the fact that we don't have an original source text that preserves that reading. Not only that, the grammar in Hebrew doesn't even support that dual interpretation, unless you actually have it written twice. So the insistence of these manuscripts is really quite compelling as a suggestion that we ought to consider finding a way to incorporate both meanings. And the other option to consider is that the ambiguity preserved in Genesis 2 verse 8, where the same phrase occurs, is due to the fact that a single lamed used as a prefix is missing from the phrase in Genesis 2, which creates that ambiguity. If the same situation existed here in Genesis 3.24, we'd be able to support both readings at once. So three sources that suggest the same ambiguity should be taken seriously. Now, in the interest of consistency, you might wonder why my reading of the text doesn't make use of the imminence language of the Targums, especially because we had that in all four of our source texts. You know, Tim, I was just thinking of something. Uh, I don't know what made me think of this, but I was just wondering why your reading of the text doesn't make use of the eminence language of the Targums. Yeah, well, with four witnesses, why wouldn't I use it? I have two main reasons for that. The phrase caused his eminence to dwell doesn't appear in any translations, only the Targums. So that's the first reason to question it. Unlike the situation we're dealing with just now with the Vulgate attesting to a variant reading in the source text. The second reason, and this is the big one, is that this is just a gloss. It's a cover phrase thrown in there to obscure the implications of the plain reading. This is the kind of thing that late Jewish interpreters are going to bring in because it means they get to explain away the original, which suggests that God actually had an embodied form. So this is why you have to be a little careful when you start getting into these late Jewish sources. Now, we've been working in Genesis 1 to 3 for over a year on the podcast. One thing that has remained consistent in our reading is the use of language that suggests that God has both locality and physicality in this narrative. And the authors of those Targums are always keen to write that out of the text if they can, because if God can be embodied, then maybe Jesus could have been God. We can't have that because that would mean admitting we were wrong about Jesus. So, yeah, that's not going to go down well with Jewish scribes. So there's a little trick going on here where the scribes simply refer to the Lord's glory instead of his manifest presence. It makes it a lot more palatable for Jewish sensitivities. And there are a lot of examples where this is done in other Targums. I'll give you a brief quote from one of the papers that I mentioned earlier. This one is called When God Abandoned the Garden of Eden, a Forgotten Reading of Genesis 3.24. And it's by Rayan and Eichler of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And it was published in Vetus Testamentum 65, which came out in 2015. Here's the quote. The wording, he caused the glory of his imminence to dwell, is simply the way in which the Targumim, which tend to avoid applying anthropomorphic language to the deity, render the word dwell when the subject of the verb is God. Thus in Exodus 25 verse 8, so that I may dwell in their midst is translated by Targum Neophyte and Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, as well as Targum Onkulos, as literally, so that I may cause the glory of my imminence to dwell among them. Again in Exodus 29:45, and I will dwell in the midst of the Israelites, is translated by these three Targumim as, and I will cause my imminence to dwell in the midst of the Israelites. A third time in Exodus 29:46, that I might dwell in their midst is translated by the three Targumim as, that I might cause the glory of my imminence to dwell among them. 
But you can't do that. Isn't that cheating with the text? Huh? Well, technically, not if you're just changing the way that you say the words. Throwing in extra phrases to give yourself a bit of a hedge against blasphemy was quite acceptable back in the day. But yeah, it really does change the meaning of the text. So it should be fairly obvious that what we're dealing with when it comes to this language around the glory of God's imminence is a simple case of trying to dodge the implications of a physically embodied Yahweh. And you can see why Jews, especially after the first century AD, would be really keen to do that. But this ties in with the whole thing around Genesis 6 as well, and the reason why the correct reading of Genesis 6, 1 to 4, has been obscured for centuries as well. If we have divine beings taking non-embodied forms or being spoken of in a way that suggests locality and physical embodiment, then we have to admit the possibility that Jesus Christ was actually God in the flesh. And that's why I reject the rendering that the Targums provide here in favour of the probably original language, which suggests that God dwelt among the cherubim. That brings us to the next issue, which is how we arrive at God stationing the cherubim outside the garden instead of God dwelling among the cherubim outside the garden. And that one just comes down to vocalisation. If you change the vocalisation points provided in the early manuscript to reflect what we have preserved in the Masoretic text, you can quite easily go from dwelt among the cherubim to caused the cherubim to dwell. And there's plenty of evidence from the Hebrew Bible that God is often referred to as dwelling among the cherubim. But we don't always have the language of embodiment, such as this example from Exodus 25, verse 22. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. There's a bit of King Jimmy in there, because I know you love it. Love me some King Jimmy, as in King James. All right, so you've got this idea of being between the cherubim, but you don't have any terminology that suggests dwelling as an embodied figure. And this is what the scribes run with when they write the targums. Like, if you can do that here in this example, then why not elsewhere? So all of this gives us some textual basis to suggest that God has actually left the Garden of Eden and is now on the outside of it, possibly to the east and possibly above the garden among the cherubim, and that's why I chose to render the phrase east of with beyond. It just so happens that that's a perfectly good English word that will give us not only the spatial element, but the chronological element. And the spatial element works in three dimensions, which means that it agrees with the Masoretic text, the four targums that I mentioned, and even the Vulgate. And of course, I want to talk about the flaming whirling sword. But before I get to that, I should probably mention since we talked about God leaving the Garden of Eden, something that I raised in my book. The following is a quote from my book, Answers to Giant Questions. Contrary to the popular view today, the text does not support the idea of Enoch's ascent to heaven either, and that is because if indeed God took him to be where God is, then we ought to expect to find Enoch in the last place we encountered God in the narrative. Enoch went to Eden, the earthly place where God once held his counsel. I've got a footnote there, which pertains to a uh, paper that I used as a reference. And it was written by Robin B. Tenhoopen and entitled, Where are you, Enoch? Why can't I find you? Genesis 5 verses 21 to 24 reconsidered. That was published in the Journal of Hebrew Scriptures, Volume 18, Article 4 from 2018. 
So the article that I referenced in the footnote there was published in 2018, and the paper that I was referring to earlier concerning the reading of the Jewish Targums was published a few years earlier than that. And you can see that there's conflict between the two views. In the one, you have Enoch going to Eden, because the assumption is that's where God must be. And in the other, the suggestion of the late Jewish interpreters is that God had already left, which means that Enoch must have ascended to the heavens or to wherever east of Eden is. So you won't hear this from a lot of people in public ministry, especially from people who are teaching. I doubt that Robin Ten Hoopen was aware of the paper that I quoted earlier from Rayan and Eichler, given that Eichler's paper had only been published a few years earlier. Certainly I wasn't aware of it until recently. At any rate, I was aware of Ten Hoopen's work at the time when I wrote my book. And even if he was aware of the paper from Eichler, it may simply be a case of not agreeing with his work on the basis that we don't have an extant source that uses the precise wording that Eichler proposes. So it could be disregarded as speculation. But speaking of speculation, there's no way that I can tell you for certain what other scholars were aware of when they wrote their work. I actually like Eichler's paper, and I don't think that his conclusion significantly alters anything of importance concerning Enoch's ascent narrative. Whether Enoch went to Eden or heaven, or not actually, is of little consequence. But for what it's worth, I would probably correct my earlier position on Enoch's journey to Eden in light of this reading of Genesis 3.24. So there you go. I have publicly corrected myself. It's not the first time. It won't be the last time. After all, for those who know my story, you'll know that the journey that led to me writing my book in the first place was a matter of me correcting a message that I delivered earlier. So we learn and we grow and we continue. I'm not expected to know everything, but we are expected to be teachable. By the way, that's not a good reason to not buy my book. Just saying, go get one. So now that we figured out that everybody has left Eden, we can talk about these divine beings accompanying Yahweh. God basically put them outside of the garden. Uh, is anybody thinking of Ezekiel 28 right now? Because I am. Just, just some food for thought there. Anyway, moving along, in case you don't know what cherubim are, think of them as divine throne guardians whose job is to protect sacred space. They don't protect God because God is never threatened, but they do keep people safe from profaning the place where God is. You might have already known this about the cherubim, and if you did, then the reading that I've proposed for this verse helps to make a lot more sense out of their placement by God. The traditional reading has them posted like bouncers outside a nightclub or something, but this way they retain their close proximity to the divine presence. You've probably seen those weird memes on the internet where people try to draw what the cherubim look like. You mean the ones where they're all eyes and wheels, wings and stuff? Yeah, they, they don't look like that either. The uh, imagery that comes through in their descriptions is designed to tell you things about their attributes, not what they actually look like. Anyway, we, we talked enough about cherubim in previous episodes, so I won't spend any more time on it here. What I think is far more interesting, and certainly more enigmatic, is the idea of the flaming, whirling sword mentioned in this verse. And I'll admit that I have read Genesis 3 so many times it's not funny, but I never really gave much thought to what this thing is supposed to be. Is it really a literal metal sword spinning around with fire on it or something? I never really had much of a mental picture of it aside from that. And I was talking about this with my wife the other night, and I asked her about famous swords, and we talked about Excalibur, the sword in the stone, you know, uh, Anduril and Glamdring and Sting and all those other swords that were in the Lord of the Rings. He-Man with his sword of power, which of course led to me thinking about lightsabers and that sword on Thundercats. This is a very good discussion with your wife. You have a lovely marriage. Um, and yes, you mean the uh, Sword of Omens. Yeah, that's the one. That was the, the sword with the laser pointer in it. I think you mean the uh, the signal, the line I used to uh, to shine up in the sky. Yes. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a laser pointer. That's what attracted all the cats to it. 
Uh, you know, now that you mention it, you could be onto something there. Didn't Optimus Prime have a sword too? And um, and Voltron. You got any more? Don't don't say Power Rangers. They were lame. No, I agree. Yeah, uh, I'm not a big fan of Power Rangers. Optimus Prime did have an axe in the uh, Transformers the movie that um, devastated yeah. an entire generation. But uh, I think you've covered a lot of good famous swords there. Mm, yeah, I, I really couldn't think of any famous ancient swords or anything in the whole Bible that had anything to do with the sword mentioned in Genesis 3.24. Uh, basically, if it didn't feature in a cartoon in the 80s or a recent film adaptation of an old fantasy novel, then uh, I probably haven't heard of it. Outside of that, the real issue is that if we are indeed talking about some kind of a sword that spins around with fire on it or something like that, how come it never appears in the Bible after that? It just seems to be this one-off phenomenon that never gets explained or spoken of ever again. And most people, until recently, myself included, never really question this. Well, that ends now. Yay! Tell us what it is. Tell me now. Inquiring minds want to know. Feed them. They're hungry. Uh, I'm, I'm not really sure. What? What are you talking about? I thought you were supposed to uh, unload all this esoteric uh, knowledge on us. Don't tell me you've got nothing. Oh, I've definitely got something. The problem is that it doesn't really rest on a great deal of biblical support because, as I've just mentioned, there really isn't anything much. But fortunately for you and your inquiring mind, I did a bit of thinking outside the box, snooping around in the ancient Near East, Thanks to a combination of a certain famous DeLorean and a hippie-style paranormal investigation van with a brown dog in it, I was able to go back in time to solve this mystery. Great Scott! Jinkies. This is heavy. Are you telling me that you made a time machine out of the mystery machine? Yeah, and I would have gotten away with it too if it hadn't been for you meddling kids and your dog. Anyway, enough of that nonsense. One of the main problems we have with the text at this point is that we have a word that appears only two times in the whole Bible. And both occurrences are translated completely differently. So that's a real obstacle to our understanding. That's the word that is translated as fiery or flaming or flashing, depending on your translation. The only other time we find that word is in the story of Moses, where he confronts the Egyptian magicians who make the snakes out of their staves. So now we're really lost because it's either fiery or magical. Why don't we have both? Ah, well, I guess we could have both. That's the funny thing about magic. There aren't really any rules like this is how magic works. So I guess if it's normal fire, it can't be magic. But if it's magical, maybe it can be fire. I, I don't know. What, what do you do with that? It's an interesting problem, and it gets more complicated when you get into the grammar of the phrase, because I'm guessing the most readers would interpret this as a sword that is flashing or looks fiery, because uh, maybe it's bright and shiny and it's spinning around, so the fiery appearance is spinning because the sword is spinning. But... Grammatically speaking, the fire is not spinning. Only the sword is spinning, and the fire is not. The fire is actually some kind of object or entity. So rather than using it as an adjective that describes the sword, we should actually be talking about a fiery thing that has a sword. So I guess the game is up by now, because if you're listening to this podcast, you know very well that this has to be some kind of divine being. The question is, can we learn any more about it? Now, for those of you playing at home, you might be wondering where I'm getting this information. Unfortunately, it's free to access online. What I'm about to share with you has come from a short paper, which is really just a published note in an academic journal. It's only a few pages. It's called The Flame of the Whirling Sword, a note on Genesis 3.24. And it was written by Ronald S. Handel, published in the Journal of Biblical Literature, Volume 104, Number 4 from December 1985, and pages 671 to 674. Okay, so to start with, we can analyse the phrase 
flame of the whirling sword, which is about as close as we can get to a translation directly from the Hebrew. You'll notice that in my rendering of the verse, I opted for flame who has rather than flame of the. And the reasoning behind that should be apparent now that I've let the cat out of the bag concerning the fact that we're dealing with a divine being. But to show that I'm not just making this up, let's have a look at a parallel from the ancient Near East that would have been familiar to Jewish readers. I've uh, a feeling we're going down the rabbit hole, Toto. Yeah, just like uh, Alice in Oz. Uh, you really got to stop mixing your pop culture references, mate. Well, you know, they say once you pop, you just can't beat it. Yeah, it makes no sense at all. Let's move on. Oh, you started it. I didn't. Oh, wait, yeah, did the Back to the Future and the Scooby-Doo thing. Anyway, mm. it turns out that there is a god that we know from Canaanite mythology, and his name is Reshef. You'll find him mentioned in the Bible by that name at least four times. At least you would if the translators didn't give you the translation instead of the name. We actually looked at it recently. Uh, last time we were looking at the prophet Habakkuk in Chapter 3 of his book where the name Reshef is translated as pestilence or burning coals or something like that, depending on which translation you have. Now, before we talk any more about Reshef, let's talk about the way that he's described in the Canaanite literature. He's referred to as Reshef of the arrow. So you can see the same kind of construction when we look at the biblical phrase in our verse for today, where we have flame of the whirling sword. There are actually some minor deities in Canaanite mythology that are referred to as flames and they carry swords in their right hands. And it's not just the Canaanites that have this kind of imagery. There is an Akkadian text that does the same thing with some kind of god referred to as fire who's wielding a sword. So this would actually be a, a fairly well-known idea then as far as the ancient Israelites were concerned. Anyway, they wouldn't have been scratching their heads uh, wondering what this was. They would have understood this much more easily than us because we need to have everything explained to us by scholars who spend all their time examining ancient texts. So it's not intuitive to us, but for the first audience, this was just part of the culture and the worldview. I'll give you a quote here from the Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible by Van der Torn, Becking and Van der Horst. That would be a familiar resource for the, those of you who are big on the whole divine council worldview thing. This comes from an article under the heading Flame, which was contributed by W.G.E. Watson. And although I didn't get it from DDD, uh, it does also cite the same paper that I've mentioned already as one of its sources. Here's the quote. There are some indications that flame, like fire, was some sort of lesser deity subservient to Yahweh, as in Joel chapter 2, verse 3, fire devours in front of them, that is the, the approaching enemy, and behind them a flame burns, also Joel 2, verses 19 to 20. That's the end of the quote. So what this means then is that we're talking about a divine being who wields a special weapon. In this case, it's a sword or something that does what a sword does. And you'll have noticed that I did not use the word sword in my rendering of the verse. Let me just read my version of Genesis 3.24 again to keep it fresh in your mind. He, that is God, thrust the man out and dwelt beyond the Garden of Eden in the midst of the throne guardians and the flame who wields a destroying weapon to guard the way of the tree of life. Now, I mentioned Reshef earlier and I'm going back to talk about him a bit more because although we don't have his name in the text, what we do have is a word that as far as we can tell means what his name means. Although the Bible translates Reshef as pestilence or sparks or burning coals or lightning or arrows or heat, what we should be thinking of is something that causes the sensation of burning. That's why we have stuff like pestilence there, because when you're sick and you suffer a fever, you feel like you're burning. In a similar way, Bible translators used flame in Genesis 3.24. That's a totally different word, but it has the same meaning and the same function in the text. 
So we have a situation where there is a divine being that functions like the God that we know as Reshef, accompanying Yahweh and his throne guardians. That's interesting because I mentioned Habakkuk chapter 3. And what was Reshef, the God of pestilence, the God who has burning arrows, what was he doing? He was accompanying Yahweh as part of the divine entourage that led the Israelites out of Egypt after inflicting plagues upon the Egyptians. So this God that we read about in Genesis 3.24 is doing the same thing. We're going to read a few verses now from Psalm 104. Starting at verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honour and majesty. Who coverest thyself with light as with a garment. Who stretchest out the heavens like a curtain. Who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters. Who maketh the clouds his chariot. Who walketh upon the wings of the wind. Who maketh his angels spirits. His ministers a flaming fire. Did you catch that? Once again, we have different wording, but all of these things are giving us a common image. These are things you can't get by doing word studies alone. You have to look at themes and imagery. We're being told that God keeps with him divine beings characterized by the use of fire or a fiery appearance. In the Canaanite literature, we had a divine being whose name is Flame, who is described as a god of drought and pestilence, and whose weapon of choice was a bow and arrows. Here in the Bible, we have an angelic being whose name is Flame, who's described as having a sword that whirls around. And here's where it gets even more interesting. The Hebrew word used for sword is not a word that describes a metal blade held in the hand for combat, but it is a word that describes what the sword does. And it means to make something wither and die or dry up as in a drought, or to destroy and make desolate. I think the idea was, you know, if you chop someone with the sword, they're going to bleed out and uh, they'll, they'll die of not having blood in them so you've got this idea of drying something out so that it dies so the description is the same as the powers that Reshef has even though the word for sword is never used to describe arrows like the weapon that Reshef has the function is identical and in this culture it's all about function so if we can look past the fact that the weapons in the hands of these respective gods are described in different terms and acknowledge that the effect of the weapons is the same regardless of the form it should be apparent that these divine beings who have the same name and the same function could actually be one and the same. And that means that we could actually have Reshef right here in Genesis 3.24 fulfilling the same role that he does in Habakkuk 3.5. Uh, if that is the case, what we're getting here is a very consistent image of the way that Yahweh is portrayed in the Hebrew Bible as the Most High God, who travels about in liminal spaces with an entourage of powerful divine beings who do his bidding. We saw that again in the quote that I read you from DDD, which mentioned those passages in the book of Joel. While I'm going out on a limb here, I'm going to suggest that the Greek god Apollo, who shares the same characteristics as Reshef, right down to the arrows, could actually fit in this slot as well. But I will issue a note of caution. As I've said before, just because a god in one culture has the same characteristics or attributes as a god in another culture, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily the same entity especially in cases where the geography doesn't work. Because if we keep our divine council worldview hats on and remember the territorial nature of the lesser gods, we're not going to find them crossing borders unless God expressly commands it. Having said that, we already have attestation from Habakkuk 3 that Reshef could move between Egypt and Canaan by way of Moab. So his presence in a Mesopotamian setting is not out of the question. Obviously, none of this is to suggest that these lesser gods, whatever their names are and wherever they came from, are to be equated with our incomparable creator, the Most High God, Yahweh Elohim. 
as I've said many times, these gods are there to do what our God tells them to do. So whether we're talking about the Mesopotamian god Nurgle or the Canaanite Reshef or the Greek Apollo or all of these or none of them, the truth is that they will never be anything more than lackeys in the entourage of our God. But what is the what is the point of all this? Uh, I mean, it's pretty cool to know all this interesting stuff about the gods, that's for sure. But how does that matter? And why is it important enough to put in this particular story? Yeah, that's, like it is the kind of questions we need to be asking. What what we're seeing here is a description of the way that God deals with mankind. He didn't send mankind away from his presence to be alone and to do his thing without God. Instead, God sent them out and then God packed his bags and came along for the journey. The classic imagery of God accompanied by his traveling companions, the cherubim and his favorite weapon, the God of plague. This tells us clearly that God is prepared to travel with his people and he's not going to leave them, even though they're in exile in a strange land with a daunting task before them. God is coming along for the ride. Yeah, that's pretty cool and very comforting. Yeah. And the last part of the verse, which is about the tree of life, when we remember what we've been talking about over the course of this podcast series in the last two seasons, we recall that the tree of life represents proximity to God and his life-giving power. And that means that according to our reading, the throne guardians and the other fiery minister of God that comes along with them are not protecting a garden with a tree in it, but they are acting as guards that go ahead in the way, advancing before God. This should be painting a picture of the exodus and the fire that went in the way before God. And again, that is very much like the picture painted in the book of Joel. The tree of life doesn't stay in the garden either. It's coming along. Well, the, the reading of this verse that you've put together just says so much and it lines up really well with uh, the other parts of the Bible. It feels like the end of the Eden story just fits better with what we know about God. It's very comforting and reassuring and uh, a very good way to end the story. And that's just... Uh, come from getting a, a better understanding of the original text in light of its cultural context and the best evidence that we have for its uh, early interpretation, right? Yeah, that's good, mate. And I just want to remind our listeners that this isn't original to me by any means. I've just hunted down the academic resources to be able to put this together. Some of this stuff is really quite recent uh, scholarship, and you, you won't see it commonly taught from pulpits around the world for a long time because it seems to take forever before people look beyond the traditions that they grew up with to see what the light of study is shining on the text now. I think what I like best about this understanding of the verse is that it just gives us a much more consistent view of who God is. You know, as we've gone through this podcast series, I've really emphasized the way that the biblical text is anti-establishment and very much in favor of God over man to the point where humanity as a whole and every human enterprise is criticized and humbled before God. But in spite of that, it is abundantly clear that the love of God knows no boundaries and this verse really brings out the way that God is faithful to us in that he is with us in our darkest hour. Even when we face harsh consequences because of what we've done, God goes through it with us. And that was true even before the Messiah took on flesh and dwelt among us and died for us. Just look at Ezekiel's vision of God enthroned on his chariot, surrounded by the cherubim, and they're all wings and eyes and wheels and all this crazy stuff. The point is that God is mobile and able to be anywhere he wants to be and travel wherever he wants to go in any direction. So he can go with you. And he's never going to let you out of his sight because he cares for you. And that concept is so important because it tells the exiles that God is still God in Babylon. God is sovereign everywhere. The limitations of the lesser gods don't apply to him. God doesn't have national borders. And you might be in exile, but he can come with you. I just want to say it one more time. 
God didn't send us away without him. He packed his bags and came too. Amen. Uh, so that's the end of our study for today and the end of our readings for Genesis 3. We've got one more episode up our sleeve for this season before we take a break. But before we wrap this up, let's finish in traditional form with the Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Okay, so we have a question here from somebody who sent in a question via the website, giantanswers.com. Odongo asks us this question. Can the present angels come down and sire giants with the human race? Hmm, That's a good question, Odongo. Thanks for sending that in. And again, if anyone wants to send in their questions, they can do the same thing that Odongo has done and visit the website, giantanswers.com, where you can submit your own giant questions to be featured right here on the show. Now, this is a question that I've answered in some detail in my book, Answers to Giant Questions, and that is available on Amazon in paperback or Kindle format. So we will talk about it here. But if you really want the full treatment, I recommend grabbing the book. It's got over 450 pages of information on this kind of stuff. So you'll understand why I can't reproduce it all here in a podcast. But to give you a bit of an idea, let's have a look at what the Bible has to say about this. Firstly, the fact that this really happened in the first place, and we actually had the divine beings referred to as sons of God intermingling physically with human women, it's not just demonstrated by a straight reading of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, but it's mentioned by other authors in the Hebrew Bible as well as the New Testament. So in Job chapter 4, verse 18, Behold, he, the Lord, put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. And again in Job chapter 15, verse 15, Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. Uh, here's one from Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 8. This is a bit more obscure. And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. I mentioned this in my book. The word folly here in Job 4 is especially telling regarding the nature of the sin of these creatures. Early in the Hebrew Bible, we find that the term translated as folly here in the King James is often a reference to sexual sin. Uh, I threw in that reference to Zephaniah because if you follow the motif of the Bible concerning clothing as it relates to glorified beings, you can see that wearing inappropriate clothing is compared to being in the wrong position or leaving the place where you're supposed to be. So the sons of God having abandoned their glorious immortal forms, are now considered to be inappropriately dressed. That's what we get from our reading of Jude in the New Testament as well. Uh, there is a lot more that we could say about this, but we need to move on to answering the question. And in the process, I'm going to show why, even though grammatically the wording of the passage in Genesis 6 is ambiguous, some translators have opted for the rendering, whenever the sons of God came into the daughters of men, uh, that reading is specifically ruled out by other passages of Scripture which limit the interactions between angels and human women to only one time in history. Now, let's have a look at the New Testament. We'll read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. And for me, I think this really puts the nail in the coffin. Uh, from verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, 
when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now look at what the Apostle Peter had to say about how many times this kind of angelic incursion could happen. There's once, in the days of, while, and the other term formally is actually better rendered at one time. So that makes four specific phrases which nail down the angelic incursion to the specific period before the flood. And although Peter is certainly aware of later events in the Bible that some might claim to be the re-emergence of sons of God mating with human women, he does not even suggest that this ever happened again after the flood. Now, some people might say, what about Nimrod? Wasn't he born as a giant? But the text doesn't say that he was born a giant. It says that he became a gibor, which suggests that he used some other means to become a giant, but he wasn't born that way. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Were there people having sex with angels there? Well, the people living in Sodom might have thought that they could give that a try, but the angels who came to rescue Lot and his family were not going to allow that to happen. And it's actually that story that gives the closest indication we have that this was actually a very real physical possibility in the first place. Although the story makes it clear that it was men trying to have sex with angels, so the men certainly weren't going to be giving birth to anything. It should be fairly clear from what happened at the flood that whatever was going on would no longer be tolerated by God and not be allowed to be repeated. And as we continue in this podcast series, we will eventually get to the flood and address that more fully and in greater detail. And I can tell you that is going to be absolutely fascinating. I really think that any divine beings that remained allegiant to God after the flood would certainly by no means contemplate crossing that line. And I'm not alone in that opinion. In fact, if you read the book of First Enoch, you'll find that the author of that book also held that view. And this became the dominant view in the Second Temple period. So it's not just coming from me. But what about at the Tower of Babel, when God dispersed the people? And according to Deuteronomy 32, God apportioned the people under the sons of God, who we know were corrupt and eventually led the people astray. Could they have found wives and created more giants? Again, I'm going to say no, because we have no evidence that there actually was another angelic fall after the Genesis 6 event. That means that the corrupt sons of God who fell back then are the ones who were given responsibility over the nations, and that was done as a judgment against them in order that the punishment they received from God would be shown as justified. In other words, they got a chance at repentance and they failed. Those same sons of God, having become embodied, suffered disembodiment at the flood and now exist in a state of limited glory and limited power, and they do not have their own physical embodiment but they can and will use humans as vessels. And I believe that was the goal at the Tower of Babel, which resulted in the origin of the Rephaim. But the Rephaim were eliminated as a result of God giving land to the children of Abraham. With every successive generation, those once glorious entities lose a significant portion of their former glory and power. As for the rebellious sons of God, they no longer have the ability to do what they once did. And then I suppose you also have to deal with the claims of people who have encounters with supernatural entities in the world today. You have the alien abductee phenomenon and you have the things that deliverance ministers are witnessing in their ministry. Let me just be really clear about this. These entities are not to be trusted and nothing that they do or say should be taken at face value. I have no doubt that the people experiencing these phenomena consider their experience to be real and genuine. But that doesn't mean that there isn't an element of deception at work on the part of these evil entities that they are interacting with. But that's the interesting thing about the paranormal side of things. 
everyone wants to come out and say that they've experienced something, but nobody wants to come out and say that they were deceived. And you hear all these conspiracy theories about alien breeding programs and Nephilim breeding programs and government cover-ups and all this kind of stuff. Here's the funny thing. Outside of the United States of America, you never hear this kind of thing. It's like the national pastime over there is not trusting the government. And all these theories and speculations are out there to use people's religious motivations to drive the political agenda. All right, that's enough of that kind of talk. I have actually addressed this question a number of times on the podcast. And as mentioned earlier, uh, I've already gone into great detail in my book about this. So that's all I'm going to say for now. And if you want more, you know where to find it. Indeed, fair enough. Well, it's about that time where we wrap up the show and say goodbye. Anything else our lovely listeners need to know? Well, next week will be the last episode for this season of the podcast, as we mentioned before, so stick around for that. We'll wrap it all up before we take a break for the next month or so. Don't forget to keep sending in your giant questions, and you can send us your feedback or suggestions or whatever else you like. Just visit the website, giantanswers.com. All right, folks, that's all for now. We will see you next week when we wrap up uh, Season 3, our final thoughts on the Garden of Eden story. We'll catch you then on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thanks for listening, as always. See you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, GravesForsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon. Paperback and Google. Check out the other podcasts at RavenCreekSC.com. Please follow and have us on socials. Don't forget to subscribe to the Friends of the Show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe. Mm, well, I have time for eating has finished. The time for speaking has begun. The time for rinsing the palate with Milo. So next week's our last week, is it? I think so. Mm. Take a month off. Read, study, chill. Well, I'll be doing one of those things. You'll be doing the other two. Good luck with that study. (laughs) There's a bit of King Jimmy in there because I know you love it. What's King Jimmy? King James. Ah. He's in the Bible. I thought it was an obscure pop culture reference I didn't understand. According to King James. Hmm. Okay. Let's do that bit again and maybe I'll clarify that King Jimmy means King James. No one's going to get that. This should be a painting. That this should be painting a picture of the Exodus and Milo's gone cold. I was just thinking, like, how do you describe Milo? Like, most of our audience would be American. They've got no idea what Milo is.
I guess it's like hot chocolate or something, maybe. Malt, malt, isn't that a thing? Flavoured yeah, malt. Well, I, I guess it tastes probably more malty than chocolatey, I suppose. Um, it does, yeah. No, like if you even had to describe malt, what even is that? I don't know. Like, no, no. Um, well, it's like Maltesers without the Ezer. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Oh. It's e- it's easeless Maltesers. Mm. I can't put it any more simply than that. Oh, it's Father's Day soon, isn't it? Mm. Are you expecting any uh, gifts of uh, substance? Uh, well, if by substance you mean more socks and more drinking wear uh, full of chocolate, then probably. Um, they gave me milkshake glasses uh, with, with chocolate in them. Oh, okay. Nice. Yep. Cool because uh, I love me a good milkshake and I don't – well, I did not uh, have – Milkshake glasses, so that was handy. Yep, nice. Oh, good. And then you know, there's always socks, socks and undies. You know. Yep, the usual. It's a Father's Day without them. Yeah, I thought that stuff was so lame when I was young. Now, now that I get it, I'm like, oh, sweet. <laughs> in in keeping with uh, being cosy, I've made a Milo, which is mostly Milo, um, and a, and a bit of uh, what Bailey's or something. Bit of. Uh, no, although that's that's a good idea. Um, no, um, just just a little hot water to dissolve the Milo. <laughs> a bit of milk to make it look like a drink. Um, Excellent. Yeah, hobnobs and um, TV snacks. Great minds snack alike. <laughs> Indeed. Bullet train. Yeah, Bullet Black Panther is going to be a weird arty thing. I don't know. Yeah. It would help if, like, any of the promotional material featured something about a story or... You know, yeah, I think it's... Yes, it's just a but it's just a string of fights. It's kind of like, hey, Brad Pitt's in it, so come and watch. Yeah. Scam callers, you know. I'd like to add you on Skype. Really? Well, I don't get that. That's interesting. No, I think it's because every so often I contact people in America. Ah, uh, yeah. You just never know, like... People you contact somewhere who have got their account hacked or whatever. Yeah. Mm, One time right. I was going to go on a show, on a radio show, and um, in the lead up to this, my host said to me, um, I'll get my uh, secretary to hook up the, the Skype meeting and that, you know? Okay. And like add me, you know, so that we could do the interview later. And I jump online and go, mm, some chick from Hong Kong or whatever, and yeah, block. Yeah, another chick from yeah, California, yeah, block. Mm, some chick from you know, the Philippines, block. You know, and I'm blocking all the, you know, block, 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 block. Uh, Some chick from Las Vegas, block. And then I'm like, I haven't seen anything from this guy. <laughs> and um, I was sending a message. I'm like, oh, I'm not sure that request came through because I don't think I've seen it. Oh, it's this chick and her name's so-and-so and she's from Las Vegas. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I like, Fortunately, you can go back and unblock them. But, um, yeah, I did, like, scroll through all these scammers <laughs> and find her. And... Oh, that's funny. Yeah. 